Amen. You may be seated. I love that last line there, mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. And we talked about that we, a few weeks ago, I believe, or was it last week, the connection with that passage of kind of a future hope of entering into that glory that when the church is victorious, but also recognizing that some have already entered into that glory. Their rest is one. They're resting now from sin in this world, the pains of this world, and we will join them one day. It's a blessed hope. Well, I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 2, continuing to work our way through these four distinctives of the church, the things that they were devoted to. And we're seeing here from Acts 2.42, the second thing is devoted to fellowship. We've mentioned it a few times already. But when people ask about the church, or, or when they want to, if you were to ask someone outside of the church to describe, you know, some adjectives, what would they, what would they give, what comes to their mind? I think the description here that Luke gives in Acts 2.42 are probably not going to be the four things on the top of their mind. The church is no longer known for its commitment to the preaching and teaching of God's word. But oftentimes, whether it's aligned or not aligned with the cultural uh, moment, right, with the cultural movement, um, the church is not generally considered to be a, a loving community, but an exclusive and bigoted community. Oftentimes the sacraments are rare or practiced with apology or just maybe a flippancy where it doesn't really, it's not as significant. You know, there, there's a, a desire not to ruffle any feathers, not to suggest that there might be some who aren't worthy of partaking the Lord's Supper. So many churches spend more time in their announcements than in prayer. Probably some of you have been in churches where it was like that. The typical church no longer seems to devote itself to what is essential. One of the essentials we see in this passage is fellowship. And so Acts opens with Jesus giving his followers a commission, and then he ascends into heaven, and he promises to send the Holy Spirit. That's followed by the, the, the coming of the Holy Spirit is followed by P uh, Peter's proclamation on the day of Pentecost to a large group, a large crowd. And then we see the response of that audience where at least 3,000 of them or about 3,000 of them are saved and baptized. So last week we saw that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. This morning we'll see that they were devoted to the fellowship. So after this group grows from 120 to more than 3,000, they're gathered together. And what do they do as they gather together? They devote themselves to these things, to the teaching of the apostles, to fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. And we would contend that those should be the same things that we're known for by those inside the church and outside. They would see such a frequency and a focus upon these things that others would say, yes, that, that church is devoted to that, whether they like it or agree with it or not. 
they would know that that's the thing that defines who we are. James Boyce writes that if you find yourself out of fellowship with God, you will begin to find yourself out of fellowship with other Christians. You will say, I don't really like to be with other Christians very much. They all seem to be hypocrites. Maybe you've heard that before. Yeah, I don't go to church because it's just it, hard to be around those people. <laughs> those people. And I'm, I'm sure you've got family, friends who think such things. And they are right. Right? We can be hypocritical. Hypocrisy has always been in the church. But, according to Boyce, and I think... Other, plenty of other uh, passages of scripture, we would say that a lack of fellowship, a lack of desire to gather together reveals much more about the person's commitment to God than about the church's own state, right? The, church, the state of the church and its uh, hypocrisy. It indicates their, their own distancing away from the things of God, and it's revealed by their lack of desire for doing his will which is to not forsake gathering together. We know from Hebrews 10 that that was something that some, even in that early church, were in the habit of doing. They were, not, they were more habitually absent than present, essentially. So what defines them is not, is not the things that the church was devoted to. So I know that can sound convicting, but that's something that we need to think about. We need to acknowledge that if if this doesn't, if that, the characteristics of the early church are not characteristic of us, who's wrong? Uh, what is God commending to us in Acts 2.42? He's, he's commending an example and a model that we should desire and follow. So God has created us with a capacity for fellowship, but sin has distorted our ability to enjoy it without conflict, whether it be internal conflict or external conflict with others. So fellowship involves the regular interaction of repentant believers, acknowledging that conflict within us, but repenting of it. And that, that regular interaction of repentant believers also involves the sharing of a concern to provide for the spiritual as well as the material well-being of others. So that we're interested in the whole person, not just the physical needs, but also their spiritual needs. Not just the spiritual needs, but also their physical needs. And we see that in this passage. We see a community that was fulfilling their obligations, their responsibilities to one another, and enjoying the benefit and blessings of belonging to a, co a community that was like that. We all long for that. We're made for that. And so we should recognize that and contribute to it and accordingly repent where we're out of accord with it. So let me ask the Lord for his uh, blessing upon this time and we'll then read Acts 2, 42 through 47. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we do thank you for this example that we have in Acts as your spirit fills the church and as they begin to experience the blessings of that communion with you, they are drawn to one another as well, drawn to support and encourage one another, and to learn more about you, to sit under the preaching of your word. Lord, these saints have gathered this morning here in this church primarily because we know that we prioritize that, 
because we prioritize your word. Your word is central in this worship service. It governs and guides everything we do. But Lord, oftentimes maybe our hearts are not inclined toward that. Or as we've said, our, our minds are distracted and on other things. And so we need you by your spirit to arrest our minds and our hearts now to cause us to be focused upon your word and to be open to being transformed and changed by your word. Lord, hearing the gospel message, being challenged and convicted, even cut to the heart as, as the crowd was in their response to Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost. Lord, we know that your spirit continues to do that, continues to convict us of our sin, cause us to repent even now and we might rightly respond in obedience and to look forward to fellowshipping with one another, whether it be in the gathered corporate setting or throughout the week as we show hospitality and encourage one another in prayer. And all of it, we recognize, is for your glory and enabled by your spirit as we participate in faith. And so help us to understand that now in Christ's name. Amen. Read with me Acts 2, 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, the first point in your outline we'll be looking at, and then I know we got started a little later in this worship service, so the sermon will take us a little past um, 11, but I'll try to, try to speed things up here. But our first point is motivation for fellowship. Motivation for fellowship. There's a strong connection between these four distinctives of the New Testament community. The apostles' teaching served as motivation for fellowship, which is partially expressed through participation in the Lord's Supper and prayer. And so they're, they're all dependent upon that first one, apostles' teaching, and then they flow from this fellowship that we enjoy with God. The, the outflow of that is fellowship with one another and that celebration of the you know, regular celebration of the Lord's Supper and prayer. So fellowship is the fruit of receiving the apostles' teachings. These, these two characteristics support one another as biblical doctrine is rightly understood. Fellowship is rightly desired. As you understand God's word better, you desire community more. I believe that's absolutely true. Not only that, but the word fellowship in Greek is related to the word common. In that same passage here, 
Uh, you have fellowship, koinonia, and then you have common, which is koina. In fact, some of you have probably heard of koine Greek. It means the, a Greek that is, that is of the common people. It was, it was the commonly spoken language. And so that word shares, it, it shares the same root. In verse 44, it says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. So there's a connection here between fellowship and sharing. Being able to share one another's material possessions and also our time together. Fellowship speaks of the interactive character of healthy relationships in a covenant community. So there's several ways in which we see this in scripture. 1 Corinthians 1.9 mentions that they would share, the, the covenant community shares in common identity in Christ. 2 Corinthians 13.14, we share in a common relationship with the Holy Spirit. Obviously depicted in Acts 2 as well. Um, they share in a common heavenly father to whom they prayed. The Lord's Prayer, our heavenly father. Philippians 1.5, we share in a common partnership in gospel ministry. And then because of that, what we share in, we also share out of the abundance that God has blessed us with to meet the needs of others. So you have these common beliefs, common practices, and therefore what results is common desire to, to join and share in one another's possessions. And there's several metaphors. We bring this up whenever we receive new members in the church. These different metaphors of the church. And you can see them all in Ephesians. Paul speaks of them. Christians are fellow citizens. And so we have the same king. Christians are one family. So we have the same father. Christians are a holy temple of which the apostles and prophets serve as the foundation. Christ as the cornerstone. And then believers make up the building. All the, the, the stones and bricks that are laying upon one another. So believers depend upon one another, right? Even as we depend upon Christ. Uh, one of the ways that Christ provides for us is through uh, the blessing of, of one another. If you remove bricks from a, a brick wall, it becomes less secure, less stable, less effective for what it was meant for. Whether that be to keep others out or to you know, provide structure and security. Um, so it just teaches us to depend upon each other. Christians are a body in which each member plays a role. Again, we've talked about if you, if you're, you see a, a hand that's by itself detached from a body, that's not a good sign. <laughs> that's a whore scene. We're rightly disturbed by that. We, we don't want to isolate ourselves. We need one another to be that body. So the church benefits from your presence. You bring a unique giftedness to this church that benefits everyone else. Maybe, maybe we need to hear that more often. Maybe we need to remind one another of how much we appreciate each other. How much we are encouraged by one another. Why would we do that? Because Christ reminds us that he has accepted us, and we need to hear that over and over, don't we? As often as we repent, we need to hear his pardon, 
that once again, he hasn't rejected us as he could, right? As, he, as, as it would be perfectly righteous for him to do. But he has redeemed us, and he's rescued us, and he will keep us. And so because he has accepted us, we can acknowledge that we will accept even those who offend us within this community. All right, we can, we can recognize that we belong here because we belong to Christ. A sense of belonging also comes with a sense of responsibility. Um, and that's, that's obvious. There's, a, there's an important role to play. And it means that if you're here, then there's, there's something that is beyond just, just your presence, right? You can come, but how are you contributing? You're bringing your voice in song. You're bringing your agreement in prayer. You're bringing your offering. That's all part of the worship service. You're also bringing your concern and your care for one another in fellowship. And that can extend throughout the week. So you do have a purpose here. It also means that we should be committed to one another so that no one's afraid to be honest and vulnerable, um, to be held accountable. And these are, these are things that, that maybe cause us to squirm a little bit in our seat. I don't, I don't know how, if I trust everyone. And you don't have to necessarily say it from, from the front of the, the room to everyone. But the idea is that you know one another so well that you're not afraid that they're gonna use it against you. That the things that you share on Sunday are gonna be the topic of a water cooler discussion on Monday. It's sad that that oftentimes is the result in churches, right? That we're more quick to share the bad news uh, than to pray for one another, support one another in those moments. But it's a, it's a, a reminder once again that although we were created for that unity and fellowship, we're going to continue to experience our, our fallen sinful nature that's going to cause us to have conflicted thoughts, conflicted emotions, and external conflict with each other. So again, we strive for that comfortable setting where we can share our fears. We can share our frustrations, our struggles in an honest and open way and receive the care that we need. It means that we should love one another to such a degree that when those things are shared with us, we actually experience hurt and pain on their behalf for them. We begin to share the burden with them so that we weep with those who weep, we rejoice with those who rejoice. And it's not just a thing we say, but it's, it's noticed, it's obvious, right? In the way we respond. So that's our motivation for fellowship is to enjoy that kind of community where we know we belong, where we know we contribute, where we have blessings and benefits as well as responsibilities. And I think that's, that's what the church is, is uh, you know, that's what church membership is for, is to receive that accountability and to be a part of a community where you can contribute. So our motivation for fellowship uh, is followed here by the hindrances to fellowship. We want to see that there are hindrances. I've already mentioned a few of them and acknowledged them, but we're going to elaborate further on that in this next section. 
whether you're a, a Christian or not, there's likely something that everyone can agree upon and that we can admit that there are problems in the church. Uh, it doesn't just take an unbeliever to see that. Right? There are problems in this church. There are problems at the church you attended previously. There are problems in every church you haven't attended. Problems pervade the church. Right? We all face challenges. We all have our sinful flesh to wrestle with as we seek to do the Lord's will. We have false motives. And so the first and primary hindrance to fellowship is our own personal sin. Instead of blaming others, taking responsibility for the way in which we, we ourselves have contributed to the conflict that we experience. That sin is often rooted in pride and selfishness, where we're looking out for our own interests and not the interests of the community. But listen to how James addresses it. In James 4, 1 through 3, he says, What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? And he's talking to, to the saints, and he's saying, your conflict with one another begins in yourself. The passions that are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And putting your needs above the community. I think there's another problem with fellowship in the church. And uh, the way it's, it comes down to just the way we define the word. It's become so loosely associated with just about every activity you can imagine <laughs> taking place in the church, right? It, it's the fellowship hall where we fellowship around cookies and, and water, right? That's fellowship. Um, now, I mean, like, we, we call Tuesday night fellowship. Now, we, we, talk, we talk about it because we want to make sure that genuine fellowship is, is a priority on Tuesday nights. But, but the word is used so frequently and so often that maybe, maybe we need to stop and recognize that we're not using it in a trite manner to, to just refer to anything and everything as fellowship. Well, I saw a friend and we fellowshiped it, you know, uh, over a joke or something like that. No, fellowship is engaging in these kinds of deeper dialogue, these deeper conversations where you are expressing the fears and frustrations that you have and experience. Derek Thomas says, few Bible words have suffered more distortion than the word fellowship. We commonly reduce it to chatter and cookies in the church hall, thinking that this is what the New Testament had in mind. Obviously, that's a faulty understanding. In, in Brian Habig and Les Newsom's book, The Enduring Community, they point out two common responses to problems in the church. One is that the church begins to define itself according to those problems. It begins to identify the problem and then try to address that problem, right? So that problem becomes the thing that is always talked about and that is always addressed. That becomes the thing that's always a, the, the point of the sermons or the point of the meetings that you have. The primary focus of the church revolves around the best ways to avoid 
the problems, the frustrations and gripes that people notice. And so in this case, the church becomes all about how you're feeling about the church. It's, it's my frustrations with the church. And so whether you're a part of the problem or the solution, it becomes about you, right? You're central. But the first response allows the problem to define the church. The second response is to just avoid problems altogether. We can only ignore them for so long, acting as if they're not really impacting the community. If I don't talk about it, maybe people won't notice. And so the longer they're ignored, what happens? The bigger the problem becomes. And so at some point, those problems can destroy a community. Right? They, they need to be addressed, but they need to be addressed with maturity. Uh, you know, mature leaders guiding us through difficult times and conflicts. We've had them in the past. Any of you could recount several examples in mind and you'll have them in the future. And so recognizing what we've gone through is preparing us for those challenges in the future and recognizing that, that it's going to be a part of a community that enjoys the benefits and blessings that we recognize here. As remarkable as this description is in Acts 2, we see that the church had conflict. You go beyond this in Acts and you look at the other, you know, 1 Corinthians, Second Corinthians, I mean, the, the epistles are filled with challenges that were taking place within the church community. So it's not as if you just get these four things right and everything falls into place. Now you prepare for the challenges as well. But the primary point that we're making here is that the hindrances that we experience here, the challenges and problems that we face in the church begin with our own personal sins. And we have to, to seek to glorify God in this ministry, uh, or as we seek to glorify God in this ministry, we realize that all of us must confront the sins that have gained a foothold in our lives. We need to realize that the sins we struggle with internally have a deep impact upon the church externally. Our union with God is inseparably linked to our union with one another. So when our union with God suffers, our union with one another suffers. That means that even the sins that many of us view as personal have that corporate impact. Your personal, individual sins affect the church. And then you must address those personal sins because they have that corporate impact. Luther was right when he suggested that no one has broken any of the other commandments unless he has already broken the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Only idolaters commit sin. Therefore, we must destroy the idol that motivates our sinfulness. And I think we recognize that, that part of the way we destroy that idol is in community. It's being held accountable. It's being, a will, being willing to confess our struggles. So a friend of mine once told me that we must not be content to pluck the fruit of sin from the tree. That's important, and we must be diligent in doing so, but until we have chopped the tree down at its root, the fruit will grow back. And so we must lay the axe to the root of the tree if we want to see lasting transformation. If idolatry is at the root of all sin, then ultimately, in order to alter our behavior, we must redirect our motivations to Christ. 
who once again, when we confess our sins freely, what does he do? Pardons us, forgives us, accepts us, receives us, invites us to the Lord's table, invites us to enjoy that communion once again, to be restored to a right standing with him and one another. And so take the time to consider those barriers that hinder you from enjoying deeper fellowship. Recognize that maybe your enjoyment of that fellowship here in the community is, is due to a personal conflict that you haven't dealt with, due to an internal desire that you're not acknowledging and confessing. These are the idols of your heart. And one of the men I would recommend reading on this is one who just went home to glory last week. Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods, is a, is a very helpful uh, book to diagnose, to ask questions about what it is that you're devoting your mind and your thoughts to. What do you go to bed thinking about? That's one of the questions he asks. What's on your mind when you first wake up? Oftentimes, those are the things that define us. So where do you put your trust? What are you fearing? Lastly, as we focus on removing the barriers to fellowship, we then will begin to enjoy the benefits of fellowship. So that's the third point, the benefits of fellowship. We've said that fellowship involves the regular interaction of repentant believers who share a concern to provide for the spiritual and material well-being of others. And then we see, and we looked at verses 44 and 45, where you have that example of how those needs were met by the generosity of those who had an abundance where they sold their possessions and shared them among one another. We see the same thing in chapter 4, Acts 4, verses 34 and 35. There was not a needy person among them. Now, the, the church is growing and continuing to grow. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each, as any had need. Now that means that those who need have to be able to acknowledge their need, and those with plenty have to be willing to share what they have. Clearly, the emphasis in fellowships upon a relationship with one another, but there's this vertical and horizontal dimension to it, right? We enjoy fellowship with God, and that has an impact upon us horizontally. These were, were not folks who were naturally generous. It wasn't like God was calling people who just, they, they, they were already very generous people and he then brought them together so that they could provide for each other. No, the Spirit filled them on the day of Pentecost and made them caring and generous saints. It was because they worshipped a God who was generous to them that they were able to be generous to one another. So John describes providing for a brother in need in John, 1 John 3.17. He describes it as loving in deed and in truth. This kind of love and care can serve as a light that shines before others. Matthew 5.16, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So there can be an evangelistic purpose in the way that we love one another generously. Daryl Bach writes that a community is really functioning with appropriate love and compassion is evident when material needs are also a concern and are being generously provided. Now, 
we also need to recognize that the community in Acts was so united and willingly giving up their private property. This didn't abolish private property altogether. And I, it has to be said, this was not communism or socialism. It was an ongoing activity that was wrought by the Spirit in the, to, to make the saints generous. And it appears to have been spontaneous even, not a coordinated effort of the church. They didn't say, hey, let's, let's get this together and let's really challenge people to sell their possessions. As needs arose, people noticed those needs, acknowledged those needs, and addressed them. And so early Christians felt a sense of responsibility toward one another. Craig Keener says their, their commitment was radical, fitting Jesus' demand for disciples in the gospel. So is the sale of private property required? No, it's, it's not forbidden to have private property. In fact, it tells us later on that they were gathering in homes. Well, whose homes were they gathering in? Each other's homes. There's, not everyone sold their home. So selling their possessions and sharing them was voluntary. But it would be all too easy to just say that and then kind of excuse ourselves, right? And go, oh, now I don't, I'll just keep what I have. That'll be great. No, the implication is that because the Spirit is active, he moves us to do those things, not out of coercion, right? But because we love one another. We want to see one another provided for. We're called to be generous with our possessions, with the resources that God has given, given to us. And I would commend you, the Lord has always provided for this church. This church has never been able to not pay a bill. We can rejoice in that. And we've had to be wise stewards of those resources, but God has been generous through you. And so I do want to encourage you in that. I'm not just challenging you and con causing conviction. I'm, I'm encouraging you with what this church community has shown a history of. And so we don't want to make excuses to not provide for the needs of others. We want to engage and to, to be generous in that. That's part of what we use our offerings for. So John Stott writes, it's part of the responsibility of a spirit-filled believer to alleviate need and abolish destitution in the new community of Jesus. And why is that? Because, because Christ has, has blessed us, because everything we have is a gift. What we possess is ultimately God's. And so we hold on to it loosely and we give of it freely. Ephesians 1.3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So again, the Father doesn't withhold his Son. He gives him to us freely. He'll give us, what, why would he withhold any good gift from us? And that, that characteristic then trans, transforms our greed, our selfishness, our pride so that we can see the needs of others and put those above our, ourselves. So scripture motivates us toward fellowship with one another by showing us that it coincides with our fellowship with God. And with that in mind, we can better recognize and remove the hindrances of our selfishness and pride. 
Rather, rather than those sins defining the church or being avoided altogether, we address them through repentance. And the effects of a church that rightly prizes fellowship is a community that generously meets the needs of others. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 gives us that example, right? Christ is a supreme example of generosity who became poor so that we might become rich in him. So fellowship that's motivated by a common faith and preserved by a common commitment to repentance results in a common concern for those in need out of a desire to show gratitude to Christ and to glorify him forever. So let us thank him now. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we have received an example in Christ's generosity toward us and in the generosity of those saints as they gather together in a community where there was a mixture of rich and poor, old and young, the saints who are mature in the faith and and those who are brand new to the faith. Lord, they are exemplary for us, and we want to recognize where we are out of accord with that characteristic. Maybe where our own fellowship in this community is hindered, whether it be because of personal sin or maybe a, a faulty view of what you've called us to, the responsibility we have toward one another. Maybe there are many needs that are unknown because they've, we've been unwilling to share those needs. But maybe those needs have been shared and yet not met because we've been greedy with the blessings that you've given us. Lord, there's so many various ways in which sin can affect our enjoyment of fellowship. And we pray that you would, not help, that you, that you would help us to see our own contribution or lack of contribution and repent of that before we begin pointing fingers at others, thinking about how much others need to change. Let us start with ourselves and let us even now respond in obedience to this example. And as we partake in the Lord's Supper, may the communion we enjoy with you draw us into a deeper fellowship with one another. For your glory, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I invite you to stand as we sing our hymn of response, hymn 207, God be with you till we meet again.